Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 1, verse 26. Once again, as you get your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, verse 26. Last time, we saw the disciples choosing a replacement for Judas, who committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus. Two men were proposed, Joseph and Matthias. After praying, the disciples cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, who was then numbered with the apostles. As we resume our study in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, we will look further into casting lots and the discerning of God's will. Now, many people have questioned the method for the choosing of one of these two men. You see, after all of these great spiritual steps now that they've taken, they end up rolling the dice to pick the winner. I mean, is this the way to choose an apostle? Is this the apostle that God chose? Now, let me say this about casting lots. It's certainly an imperfect way to discern God's will, but you know, it's much better than the methods that many Christians use today, relying on emotions, circumstances, feelings, and carnal desires. Often in the Old Testament, if they had something to decide, they would cast lots. They cast lots for the land when Joseph had to divide the land among the 12 tribes. And again and again, as you read the Old Testament, when they wanted to know the will of the Lord, they would cast lots. So the procedure here is typical Old Testament stuff. If a person wanted to know God's will, he would go to the high priest who had what was called the Urim and the Thummim in his breastplate. Now, the Urim and the Thummim were probably two stones. They don't know for sure, but they believe that there were two stones, one black and one white. And when asked a question, the high priest would offer a prayer, and then he would pull out a stone. Black meant no, and white meant go. Some even say that we get the term blackballed from this process. Blackball meaning a no vote against a particular project or an idea. Now, a specific example of an Old Testament character involved the casting of lots found in the book of Jonah when the sailors on the boat cast the lots. You remember, they cast the lots to see whose fault it was, and uh, just before they threw Jonah overboard, Jonah 1 and verse 7. Now, many Christians today also go back to the typical Old Testament stuff when they try to discern God's will. They use what is called a fleece, borrowing an idiom from the account of Gideon, in Judges chapter 6. Gideon had a decision to make, so he had this thing with a fleece. But the fleece in Gideon was intended to be a unique event, not a common practice. But often you hear Christians today talking about setting up a fleece with God. You know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this thing. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. I don't know if I'm supposed to do that. And so they set up a fleece and they say, well, if this happens, they give God two choices. They say, well, if this happens, then I will interpret that as the Lord wanting me to go to the left or to the right. That kind of a thing. Now, do you cast lots? Or do you put out a fleece today when you try to determine the will of God? Do you do that? I want to tell you, I don't cast lots to determine the will of God. I mean, if you come into my office and you say, well, you know, I've got to know whether I should move to Las Vegas or I should take that position in Atlanta, hey, no problem, let's just throw a couple of stones in the bucket here and pour them out and see what happens. No, we won't do that. Because you see, you never find this pattern ever, ever again after the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. Once the Holy Spirit came, 
This business of throwing dice or putting out a fleece to find the will of God was totally set aside. I mean, you never read of anything like this ever taking place again. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Once the Holy Spirit came upon the church, then the Holy Spirit began to speak to them, you see. Now the Holy Spirit can speak and direct them. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, we read these words. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord, in other words, as they were praying, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So you see that now, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit is the guide, not the casting of lots. And notice that they were praying together here. You know, the next time you have a decision to make or you have a struggle within, I would really encourage you to get together with other brothers and sisters and say, would you pray with me about this? But you know, it amazes me how reluctant we are to really do that. I mean, we will talk to our spouses and we will struggle with ourselves, but rarely will we ask someone else to seek the Lord with us. But I want to tell you that the one who does will hear his voice in wonderful ways. Verse 26. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, most scholars believe that this was a gigantic mistake on the part of Peter, because they believed that the one that God had appointed was yet to surface. In fact, quite a rabble-rouser by the name of Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, he becomes Paul the apostle, and he turns the world upside down. So most scholars view Paul as the 12th apostle, not Matthias. You see, Matthias never shows up after this. We know absolutely nothing of him. This is the only time that we read about him. He pops up here and we say, who in the world is this? And then we never read about him ever again. In fact, you would never know that he existed if you didn't read this. We never read about him in the book of Acts. He's never mentioned in any of the epistles. There is one mention of him, one of the ancient fathers makes an obscure reference to him indicating that he was martyred in Ethiopia or someplace like that. So he apparently had a ministry, but he clearly doesn't surface as what is apparently God's choice. But you know, we have to be careful because we have a tendency when we think that way to sort of put down Matthias. No, no, he responded to a call. You see, he was ready with his knowledge of Christ and an open mind and a heart to receive the Holy Spirit. He was there at Pentecost, you see. That's really all that matters. Whether his ministry afterward received the recognition of history is unimportant. And the same is true of us. Once we have experienced what Jesus said and did for us in his death and his resurrection and continues to do through the power of his Holy Spirit, Titles or histories of recognition or even the accolades of people today become unimportant. But I think from the subsequent history, it is obvious to assume that God chose Paul as an apostle. Paul declares it himself. 
I believe the disciples got way ahead of the Lord here by trying to make something happen before the power of the Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And that's a mistake that I make frequently. I know God wants to do something, and I think, okay, how can I get this thing going? How can I make this happen? Instead of saying, Lord, I'm just going to wait upon you and the power of your spirit to make it happen. I believe that the man the Lord chose was Paul. Listen to Paul as he writes to the Galatian believers. Listen to his words here, Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men. In other words, not by the casting of lots, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying that he was chosen by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, not by men, you see. How did it happen? Through the Holy Spirit whom God had sent into the world. And the ministry of Paul certainly justifies the fact that he was the one to take Judas's place. Now, Luke, in writing this account, is no doubt pointing out that casting lots, used all through the Old Testament, is a very, very, very poor substitute for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who now becomes the source of wisdom and discernment for such decisions from the day of Pentecost following. He certainly did not relate this count of the election of the replacement of Judas to show us how spirit-guided decisions should be made. But you know, today, you do not need to cast lots. You don't need to throw dice. You do not need to put out a fleece. You don't even need to give God two choices. You've got the guide living within you, the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit. And that is far and above what was going on here in the casting of lots and the rolling of the dice. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And this day is the most important day to the church next to the crucifixion day and the resurrection day. It's when the church is born. It is when the world is never the same. You might say that the world is turned upside down. But in reality, the world is turned right side up. The church goes through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. And wherever they go, they are turning people back into a right relationship with God. So Pentecost becomes the birthday of the early church. So it is very, very significant. And you're going to notice something about this church. It starts in Pentecost, and it starts without board meetings, and it starts without committees, and it starts without demographic surveys of the area of Jerusalem. It is done by a group of people who just say, Lord, what do you want? Use us. And it is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozier wrote this, listen to it. If the Holy Spirit were taken away from the New Testament church, as seen in the book of Acts, 90% of what they did would cease. If the Holy Spirit were taken away from the church today, 10% of what it does would cease. It's quite an indictment to the church, isn't it? Now, how did the early church do it? They didn't. God did it. It was a sovereign work. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock, I will build my church. At the end of Acts 2, it says, and the Lord added daily to the church, such as should be saved. You see, Peter didn't take this upon himself like he did so many times previously. Peter didn't say, okay, hit the streets, demographic surveys, find out what the people want. We won't give them what they need, but we will give them what they want. Oh, they want user-friendly music? Well, then let's give them secular music. Oh, they want soft, easy sermons? Well, give them soft sermons. No repentance. We won't be heavy on them. No, Peter didn't do what has been done in the 80s and in the 90s. It was a work of God. Case in point, look at the church in China. After 100 years of mission involvement in China, missionaries coming from the West, it yielded 800,000 converts. Keep that in mind. After 100 years, 800,000 converts. Then in the 1940s, after the Cultural Revolution, Western missionaries were expelled from China. They were kicked out, all of them. The church in China then went underground, and they didn't have the resources and the surveys and all of the stuff that we have today. They didn't have the elaborate plans. They were shut up underneath the society, as it were, and they began to meet in houses. And then, because of that, there were house searches, and they were under intense persecution. Many were killed, many were imprisoned and beaten for their love for Jesus Christ. Then, when the doors of China began to open again, the people in the West wondered, how did that suffering church in China make out? Will there be any Christians left at all? After all, they didn't have all the resources that we have, they didn't have the programs, they didn't have the plans, they didn't have the media that we have, and they had been severely persecuted. And was the Western world ever shocked? In the 80s, when the Western world examined China, they found that conservatively, at the low end, there were 50, and at the high end, 100 million believers. 100 million believers in those few years in China. And that was a tremendous shock to the Western world. They thought, how in the world did that happen? Well, what happened was they latched onto the same power source that the early church latched onto that we see here in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there are basically two camps, two primary camps. There are the secessionists who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. They emphasize the teaching of the word, which is a good emphasis, but they are not open to anything else beyond that. And then there are those that are way on the other end of the spectrum, who do things like laugh and bark and, and do whatever else is done in the name of the Holy Spirit at the expense of truth. They emphasize signs and wonders and miracles. And if you don't do that, the Holy Spirit has not moved and the church is dead. But we believe that there is a balance and that the Bible teaches that there is a balance. That we are to be open to the Holy Spirit, but that we are to balance everything with the Word of God. We believe teaching the Bible, as in the book of Acts, is to be preeminent. But we are open to the Holy Spirit and His movements in all of the gifts of the Spirit in a proper context as is outlined in the New Testament. You see, it should not be a thing of either or. 
In fact, a little maxim that might help us is this. Too much of the word and you dry up. Too much of the spirit and you blow up. Enough of both and you grow up. There needs to be a balance of both the word and the spirit. Now, there are two mistakes that we can make when it comes to experiencing the Holy Spirit. First, we can claim an experience that is not in the Bible, that goes outside of the parameters of Scripture or contradicts it. And let me say that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but much of what we see today in the so-called charismatic movement is not scriptural. Being slain in the Spirit, you will never find that anywhere in the Bible. Inner healing is nowhere found in the Bible. Christians being demon-possessed and having demons cast out of them is nowhere in the Scripture. And then the barking and the animal noises and the laughing in the Spirit, that is not in Scripture. You see, these are unscriptural extremes that have no foundation in the Bible. And the only way that you can come up with them is if you are open to stuff outside the Bible, outside of what the Bible teaches. Now, the second mistake is the exact opposite. One is to claim an experience that contradicts or goes beyond the Scripture. The other is just the opposite. It is to be satisfied with much less than what the Bible says we should experience. God wants you to experience just what the Bible says you should experience. Now let me ask you a question. Have you experienced all that the Bible says that you should experience? You see, it's so interesting because many people today are going places to have an experience that contradicts or goes beyond the Scripture, yet they have never experienced all that the Bible says that you should experience. God wants you to experience the truth of the Word of God. So, first mistake, interpreting the Scripture by my experience. The second mistake, quenching the Spirit altogether. Well, that brings us to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, who was in one accord in one place? After rising from the dead, Jesus appeared to his disciples for a period of 40 days. Just before he made his final ascension into heaven, Jesus instructed the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look back at chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him, out of their sight. Now verse 12. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about a hundred and twenty. Verse 1, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, that is the hundred and twenty, were all with one accord in one place. Now notice that the company of believers were all with one accord. With one accord means with a single passion. They had gathered together sharing the same heart, the same love for God, the same trust for His promise. What an essential part unity plays in the work of the Holy Spirit. These followers of the Lord were united in their inward commitment to God and to one another. You see, they were not divided in any way. But it is so easy for us to fall away from the oneness in spirit and yield to the temptation to be critical and to find fault with one another. When the Lord left this little group of 120 followers, they had a Savior and a promise. They had no guns, they had no tanks, they had no armies, no social standing, no political power, no status, no nothing. But they resolved to pray together and to stay together, and while they did so, the Pentecostal power fell upon them. And this is the very first thing that Luke tells us of the faithful group of followers of the Lord. With one accord, they were together in supplication. One of the things that pulls people together is a tremendous commitment, a dedication, and a vast assignment. Jesus told his followers to wait and to pray because he was committing into their hands the evangelization of the world. And such an assignment bowed them to their knees in one accord. In a common determination, they faced the evangelization of the civilized world. You see, they had a single passion. But notice that they weren't just with one accord, but it says also that they were in one place, which underlines the importance of being in church together. You know, some people like to say that they can just worship God in nature, you know, walking on the beach and riding your bicycle on Sunday morning or or the golf course. But on the day of Pentecost, all of those folks would have missed out because the Holy Spirit fell on those that had been gathered together in that place in obedience to Christ. Sometimes we fall into the mindset that going to church is optional, but it really isn't. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to be together in church because we need to have others who will encourage us in the Lord, stirring us up in love and good works. And the catch is we also have to stick around to get to know one another or we'll really never be encouraging one another. Now, before we can be filled, we must recognize 
our emptiness. By gathering together for prayer in obedience, these disciples were doing just that. They recognized they did not have the resources within themselves to do what they could or should, and they had to rely on the work of God. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, what is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50. The day was called that because it was 50 days after the Passover feast. Jesus was crucified on Passover, and this is 50 days after Passover. Pentecost meant a Jewish feast, which is given to us in the Old Testament under the title, the Feast of Weeks. That is, seven weeks were to be numbered from Passover. Seven times seven, 49, or 49 days. Then on the 50th day, they were to have the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. Now at Passover, the first sheaf to be reaped from the barley harvest was presented to God. But at Pentecost, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were given to God. This is the time when they would gather the winter harvest, the winter heat, the winter grains that had been sown. The Feast of Pentecost then was marked by them taking a portion of their field and harvesting it, tying the wheat into sheaves, and offering them before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest would do it. He would take the sheaves, wave them before the Lord, and offer them as the first fruits to God, saying, God, to you belong the first fruit. There's a harvest that is coming, but this Lord is the first fruit, and it belongs to you. And they would give to God the first fruits of the increase of the land at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Feast of Pentecost was one of the three feasts each year where all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Exodus 34 and verse 23 tells us that. This means that Jewish people from all over the world will be in Jerusalem at this time. And so when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, the word fully come in the Greek, it means to fill completely or to complete entirely, to be fulfilled. That's what the word typically means, to fill completely. But here it is talking about a particular time being fulfilled or being complete. You see, this is talking about some kind of a prophetic fulfillment. It is not coincidental that the Holy Spirit fell upon the church that day, bringing in the first fruits of the cross, the first fruits of the gospel, as 3,000 people will respond to the message preached and be saved, and the church will be born. It was a prophetic fulfillment of the feast. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. The Holy Spirit came suddenly, abruptly, unexpectedly, the kind of an abrupt happening that jolts and startles a person. You see, God was dramatizing the supernatural and the precious significance of this event. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way. <laughs>